Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David Bryan, Goldsmiths, University of London. In this episode, I'm talking to Professor Nick Crossley from the University of Manchester about his new book, Networks of Sound, Style and Subversion, The Punk and Post-Punk Worlds of Manchester, London, Liverpool and Sheffield, 1975-80. to Okay, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Nick Crossley, um, who works in the sociology department at the University of Manchester about his new book, Networks of Sound, Style and Subversion, The Punk and Post-Punk Worlds of Manchester, London, Liverpool and Sheffield, 1975 to 80. Hello. Hi. So, um, to start off with this, I really enjoyed this, partially because um, it's a really good, um, solid, theoretically grounded bit of sociology, but also it's about punk and it's dead interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a real pleasure to read. And I wonder actually, um, before we get into it, if you could tell the listeners a bit about the process that brought you to write this book. So a bit about your academic background and, and why you've ended up applying social network analysis to the book. Yep, sure. Well, firstly, thanks very much. I'm glad that you, you enjoyed it. Um, uh, yeah, so, so the background to it, I had, um, I've done a lot of work on social movements. Um, so looking at different protest groups and, and how they form and mobilise. And um, and really, as, I suppose, partly as a consequence of that, I started to get interested in network analysis. Um, and and, and, I, and I think I, I reached a point where the social movements were quite difficult. Quite, it was quite difficult to get information about... Um, uh, about the social movements involved, the, the social networks are involved in many kinds of, of social movements. Um, and I think in, in the process of working through that, I began to think about what I already knew about punk um, and the networks involved in, um, in, in that. And I think, actually, I think part of it as was, was well was to do with teaching. I wanted some easy-ish sorts of examples to, of social networks to work with. And I kind of thought, well, maybe the social movements are difficult to get hold of, but maybe thinking about punk would be easier. So I started to put a network together just on the basis of, because I'd been a huge punk fan yeah, yeah. As, as a kid, and I started to put the network to, together on that basis. Then I started Googling a few people, and it turned out that th- there was even more of a network than I'd imagined that, that there was on the basis of what I, I remembered. Um, and then I think I, I started to think, well, maybe I could get a paper out of this. Uh, maybe there's enough there. And, and in particular, thinking about the parallels between social movements and, and what I was thinking of at the time as musical movements. Um, and starting to sort of think, well, maybe the arguments that say there has to be a network in order for a social movement to form or a protest to happen, it applies in the case of music as well. Maybe you don't get things like punk unless there's already some kind of pre-existing network there. 
Um, and that, that was really the, the strand of thought, I think, that, uh, that, that, that took me, that started me off on, on the whole process that, that eventually, five or six years later, led to me starting to write the book. I mean, it's funny in a way that uh, punk, and maybe to a lesser extent, post-punk, is stuff that um, in contemporary culture we just assume we understand. Uh, but one of the things the book does is intervenes in a way that says what you think you know about punk, you probably don't. So I wonder if you could say what punk is, perhaps a little bit about what post-punk is, and how the book challenges expectations around the kind of the dominant stories of punk. Right. Uh, well, what th- those questions, what what it is, are, I think are, are very, very difficult, and I'm not sure that I have I've got a, a, a perfect answer to that. Um, because, because I suppose questions about what it is belong to the world of punk itself and will always be argued about. So, uh, so, so as I was looking at the, the, the London punks, I was looking at the networks that formed around the Sex Pistols, you see lots of debates there with the older pub rockers, Dr. Feelgood, Ian Jury, um, and people who are saying, well, we were doing it before you were doing it. We're the original punks. And then there's all the debates about what was happening in the United States as well, uh, around CBGB, where um, television, Patti Smith, the Ramones, and these kinds of groups were all starting to form. And indeed, the earlier waves um, of uh, of the Stooges and the MC5 and, and these other kinds of things. And so, um, so, so in, in some senses, I... I didn't answer the question what is punk yeah. because whatever answer I came up with would, would undoubtedly be wrong in the view of, of lots of people but I think I I just became interested in in the network that involved the the London punk groups initially that I'd grown up loving so the Sex Pistols the Clash the Banshees the Damned the Slits um, Chelsea Generation X, that those those bands, and I think that that was where I'd started with the with the network. I knew that Bernie Rhodes and Malcolm McLaren, the managers of the Sex Pistols and, and the Clash, respectively, knew one another, and so that that was that was kind of where I started. And I suppose that that for me, um, that that particular world, as I call it, or, or that particular movement was what it was that I w- wanted to uh, to focus upon. And I think it was that cluster of bands and the people involved there who generated all the excitement that I got swept up in and, and that, that was that meant so much to me. So so I think and I think that, that was that was a, a a kind of a, a locus of interaction and activity and excitement, and and I call that punk. And I, you know, <laughs> kind of prepared to accept that, you know, it might just be one version of it or, or whatever else. But but that was it for, for me. Um, and then I think uh, from that hive of activity in London, you, you get a, a diffusion outwards to mainly to other cities uh, initially and perhaps initially to, uh, to, to Manchester because some early links that were formed between uh, the, uh, between London and, and Manchester but also to places like uh, Liverpool and to um, and to Sheffield and you get a 
a process, a very very similar process to the one that I observed in London happening in Liverpool, in Manchester, in Sheffield and in lots of other uh, towns and cities um, in, in the UK. But, um, but, but what happens, and I, actually I was really struck when I was looking through the archives of just, just about how, how obvious and apparent this, this becomes, is that within the space of six to 12 months of, of punk having really gone public and, and, and become something that lots of people knew about, uh, a lot of the instigators, the, the early the people who'd been involved early on were starting to get bored of it and, and were starting to say, um, we don't we just we don't want to just simply reproduce this this format of you know whatever. I mean I think I, I think sometimes we we tend to um, we, we, we tend to assume that punk music was more simple than it was, and you know we either celebrate that or we condemn it. Uh, but nevertheless, that that format was something that people began to become irritated about and wanted to move away from. And perhaps punk itself was becoming uniform in the sense that a, a movement which had initially, or a world which had initially been centred upon um, upon. Uh, people experimenting and doing their own things and trying out all sorts of different styles had had become centred upon bondage trousers and uh, jack boots and leather jackets and, and a very sort of uh, stereotyped uh, style and view. And so you start to get people um, who, who are still inspired by the DIY ethos of punk. They're still inspired by the idea that you can and should do it yourself. Um, but the, but what they want to do, the style of music that they want to to, to work with, is is different. Um, and so, and, and interestingly, it, it's although we, although I don't want to overgeneralise too much, but you get different styles developing in different cities. I mean, so Liverpool is is always, I think, thought of as a as the home of psychedelic music or neo psychedelic music. And and, certain, and and whilst there was lo- there were loads of things going on in Liverpool loads of people doing different sorts of things there certainly was that that hub of of, of bands working around a loosely psychedelic theme like on the bunny man teardrop explodes wah and, and i guess that was related to some extent to to the central importance of pro records and the interests of the people who who work there in in sheffield by contrast you had this real focus on electronic music that was related to Cabaret Voltaire, the Human League, uh, Clock de Var, and, and so on. Um, and, and so you had these distinctive sounds emerging in different cities, but they were all in some senses post-punk because they were all about taking the um, the DIY ethos of punk, taking the idea of, yeah, we're going to do it for ourselves and we're going to enjoy it, um, but uh, but but taking it off in different directions, and I think also what you had in there were people who perhaps were never that persuaded by the punk style itself. I think this is probably true in Sheffield with some of the electronic pioneers. They were never completely um, uh, persuaded of, of of the punk bands and punk styles, but they loved the idea that you could do it yourself, and they wanted to do that with their own sort of chosen forms of music so so I, I mean and that that really was what post-punk was I think 
Uh, and there was also, but there was also a network. So there was lots of movement between Liverpool and Manchester, and 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 Sheffield and Manchester. I think geographically, Manchester was just in the middle. So the two tended to to converge um, uh, around there, um, and that that became even truer with the with the independent record labels as well. That you started to get these intercity or, or translocal networks forming that that gave this diverse range of activities some kind of connectedness and, and cohesion. I mean, it, it's funny in a way, because over the course of that, um, that explanation, you're already gesturing towards the more technical aspects of sociological analysis there in the book, particularly around social network analysis, yeah. but also some of the um, theoretical work you do around trying to establish what it is that, what it is exactly that you're studying. So, What's the idea of a of a musical world? Um, and I think that is tied up with with the kind of the boundary making around punk. And yeah. it's not a scene. Um, it, it's something that's uh, that's different from a subculture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is uh, this is perhaps the controversial bit in the sense that this is the bit that some people like and other people don't like. Uh, I, I mean, I think the. The, the idea that there are a number of, of different concepts, as you've just said, that, that are on offer for thinking about the collectives that are involved in, in music making. The one that has been predominant in British sociology um, or, or was predominant for many years was the idea of subculture. Um, and then, the, like you said, there's the idea of scene, there's Bourdieu's idea of field, and, um, and there's this idea of of world uh, and, and I suspect you could probably go with anyone I mean if, if you had a preference for anyone of them you could make a case for it you could go with it but I was particularly um, I, I was particularly impressed with the work of Howard Becker and Howard Becker's um, ideas on art worlds uh, and it seemed to me that um, it seemed to me that, that Becker Offered a um, a coherent set of interrelated concepts, which allowed you to think about music or, or any kind of art, in fact, but music as collective action. It encouraged you to look at the ways in which um, people cooperated and, and also sometimes competed and conflicted. Uh, with one another in the process of art, and which which um, emphasised that art was always a co-creation. It always involved the different input of of these people playing different uh, di- different roles. Um, and and although Becker's I mean, although Becker's original formulation isn't perfect, it it was the one that really captured me, the one that inspired me. And, and it seemed to me that it was, for example, it was a, it was a cohesive set of theoretical ideas, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't closed in, in, in the way that sometimes Bourdieu's idea of fields can be. It seemed to invite you to push off in different kinds of directions. It wasn't quite as prescriptive, I don't think, as, as Bourdieu's idea of fields was. But then there's still some sort of cohesion to it, where in contrast, say, to the concept of scene, which um, I think there are just lots of different versions of, and, and those different versions of it conflict with one another. So it doesn't, 
whilst any one version of scene might be coherent, um, people people understand very different things by the word scene if you use it, and so that that seemed to, to perhaps be problematic. And I suppose the, the contrast really with um, subculture was that the idea of subculture seemed to be very much focused on audiences alone. Um, and, and yet the notion of world seemed to include artists and audiences and all the various support personnel that are necessary for, for music to happen. So, um, like I say, I mean, any, any, any advocate of any of the other concepts would probably do a similar job of explaining why theirs is best. Yeah. But, but that's, that's why I, I opted for this idea of worlds. And also, interestingly, Becca puts quite an emphasis upon networks. Um, and that, that, that resonated with where I'd come into to the idea of, of networks. Um, and, and it seemed, although he didn't develop it in a technical way via social network analysis, it seemed to me that he kind of invited you to do that. That was, that was one of the, uh, that was part of the potential of this notion, was that you could take that element of worlds and do something more with it via social network analysis. And I think, sorry, just, just yeah. the one other thing was, uh, that took me was Becker's idea of art as collective action, which then resonated with my earlier interests as a social movement scholar. Um, and so there was this kind of sense of, well, yeah, you, if you're thinking of... Becker's was the concept which, which resonated most closely with my sense that the uprising that was punk was sociologically very similar to the uprising that was May 68 or the uprising that was the formation of the environmental movement. I mean, social network analysis is obviously the other kind of the major thing going on in the book. Yeah. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear, you know, you maybe talk through that or give a, a brief explanation about it. But one of the things I was very struck by was the book is not doing social network analysis of punk because it's something that, you know, would be technically interesting but would not destabilise the literature or bring anything new. Yeah. The book is using social network analysis to kind of take on existing explanations right. of yeah, punk. Yeah. So I wonder if you could sort of talk through what an SNA is in a way that kind of makes it clear why doing a social network analysis is different to, say, explaining punk as, you know, the frustrations of contemporary in the 70s British masculinity or Malcolm McLaren's fashion label or, or these yeah. other structural or individualist explanations that are already out there. Yeah, okay. So, well, I'll start, I'll start with the other explanations then. So, so there's a, there are a few fairly standard explanations of punk. I mean, I guess coming from the, the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies, punk is seen as, uh, as an expression of um, the, the alienation of, of working class youth. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a response to, uh, it's a response to that. Or um, another version of that is the idea that punk was a response to the economic crisis of, um, of, the, mid of the mid-1970s. Or, again, an, another sort of explanation along those lines was was the idea that it, it was it was frustration at what 
rock and pop music had become in the mid-1970s. So you've got a generation of people who grow up with rock and roll, then they move through the Mersey beat, they get the, the, the kind of, uh, they've got, they grow up with Motown, and then they get in the mid-1970s and they've got Mud and Sweet, uh, and these kind of, you know, I mean, I think that many of them found David Bowie really exciting, but glam rock had almost become a parody of itself by the mid-1970s. And then on the other side, you've got, um, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and these very grandiose um, uh, pretensions. Uh, And and so punk is seen as a a response to the frustration that that caused. And the problem with that sort of explanation, any of those explanations for me, and really here I'm just nicking a, critique that's used in social movement studies very often is that is is that that frustration was was ubiquitous i mean and i and indeed i found it i found examples of it in uh, manchester in in liverpool you you there's clearly people were frustrated they were frustrated economically and politically they were frustrated about music young uh, working class people were alienated but but the problem was that 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 was happening everywhere. Yeah. Punk didn't happen everywhere. Yeah. Punk happened in very specific kinds yeah. of places, um, and so uh, and and so I, I wanted to know well why or how did it happen in the very specific places that it did, and I suppose the I suppose it's more of a how than a why because I think there's an element of chance in it. I think it could have happened first in Liverpool. I mean you. Uh, I don't know that I should go how how much detail I should go into about this, but you look at what was happening in Liverpool with with the band Deaf School um, in the early 1970s, and they were starting to make many of the same noises, you know, pun intended, <laughs> in Liverpool that that would later lead to something happening in in London. So yeah. it could have happened in in. Um, in Liverpool, lots of grumbling in Manchester about the, the labels and the selling out of the... So it could have happened in Manchester, but, but it happened first in, in London. And so I wanted to know, well, what was the process? How did it happen? And that starts then, I think, to focus you more upon the, the set of people who were involved and the, the kind of what social movement theorists have called the micro-mobilisation processes. How did it just come about that these people started doing what they were doing? Um, and, and, and in order to answer that question, I then came back to this idea of network. And, and you know, I, I sort of thought, well, perhaps what you have in Manchester and in Liverpool is a set of people with very similar sentiments to the people in London, but they're not connected to one another. So their frustrations are, um, and they're not connected to to people who might be in a position to to do something with this. Um, uh, and 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 what the difference in London was that. These, the, these different people with these same interests began to converge and began to form a network. And my argument was and, and is that it was the, uh, the, the network which enabled the collective action to happen. When people started to connect with one another, they began to share resources, they began to influence one another, they began to compete with one another, um, they began to uh, 
to, to share ideas. And it was through the, those processes of interaction that something began to take shape, that, that what we later recognised as, um, as punk began to, to take shape. And so, um, and, but in order to make that case persuasively, I I didn't I couldn't just offer the impression that well yeah it looks to me like um, all the people in London knew one another and were interacting yeah. with one another and all the people in Manchester weren't so that was really I suppose where social network analysis which I knew from my social movements research uh, came into um, came into action because social network analysis was a very precise way of um, a, a very precise way of mapping the networks and saying who is interacting with whom in insignificant and in important ways, and indeed, to some extent, who even knows uh, whom. And so I, um, and, and so I, so I set about that was when I set about going more in a more systematic way through the archives and just looking at who the key players were in Manchester and, and London, and trying to work out at what point they they knew one another and at what point they began to interact with one another. And, and the difference really between Manchester and London was that networks had begun to take shape in London um, er, much earlier than, than they did in, in Manchester. So there were eventually there were networks in both cities, but it was it, it, it was the process of network formation which happened earlier in London, and which seems to have been the basis upon which punk, um, on which punk happened, and but the network was also um, a way of combating what you also referred to in the question, the overly individualistic explanations of, of punk that that we um, that that we get. Uh, so, um, so so in particular, John Lydon or Johnny Rotten. Um, and Malcolm McLaren are sometimes identified as, as the people who made punk and it was all down to whichever one of the two you prefer or sometimes perhaps both. Um, and, and it seems to me, firstly, the art world's idea, Becker's art world's idea is, um, is, is challenging that. Part of the reason for saying art is collective action is to get away from the idea that art is reducible to the genius or charisma of, of any particular single person. Um, and, but also the, the network analysis was a way of trying to begin to explore that um, because, for, for me, McLaren and Johnny Rotten were hugely important and, and, and I've no doubt that, uh, that the particular shape that Punk took was, um, was influenced to a huge extent by, by each of them. But it, but it couldn't have happened unless they were a part of a network. Uh, it couldn't have happened unless they had connections to other people who um, who were in, impressed by what they did, who were sympathetic to, um, uh, to to what they did. And clearly, that wasn't going to be everybody. Um, you know, I mean, lots of people were were distinctly underwhelmed by the Sex Pistols and McLaren or horrified by them. But when you had a network of people who had begun to share particular kind of sentiments and then you had people in that uh, network who were 
good organizers or who were charismatic, at least charismatic to the other people in the network, um, then 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 the, those people were able to be operators or were able to steer and uh, lead a, a movement in in the way in the way that they did. But it can't be reducible to the individual. It's got to be the individual as a player within a wider network. I mean, you sort of. Uh, talked about this a little bit already, but I wonder if you could uh, illustrate this by talking through, um, which is essentially chapters four uh, through six, talking through the story of punk's emergence in London. Yeah, right. Uh, so I, I think it, it, uh, it's, it's a long story. I know, yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it's a complicated story, but um, I suppose. The the starting point for me is Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's shop, um, which had various different names at different times. But Sex uh, is, is the the I suppose the name that it had for most of the early formation of punk um, on on the King's Road. And um, McLaren had a, and, and Westwood had originally sold um, Teddy Boy clothes. Um, and they, uh, and, and then later on, had gone to, I think, borrowing ideas from other people, had decided that the um, the trappings of sexual fetishism were might be a basis for provocative everyday clothes and um, uh, clothes that, that people might might wear out out on the streets, and so. So the idea of the bondage trousers and the bum flaps and all these various kinds of things uh, comes from. And I think that, I mean, firstly, McLaren himself had an interesting network way before the start of punk. He um, uh, he had he, he had connections to Jamie Reed, who was a, a situationist um, artist. Um, he he had rock music connections to some extent because he'd made contact with the New York Dolls in the early 1970s and he supplied some of their clothes. Um, he had links with, and this is a test of whether I can remember people's <laughs> names, uh, he had uh, links with um, uh, the guy, the guy who was in the Sharks, um, who was uh, Chris Spedding, um, who who had who had played with Roy Harper and various other kinds of of, uh, um, of people. So so there was there was this interesting network of artists, businessmen connected to the shop, but also the shop became a place where young people who were interested in um, subcultural fashions and slightly more out there uh, clothes came to buy their clothes. Because even in London, I think there were very few places where you could go, even, for example, and buy brothel creepers or all the kind of fairly um, fairly standard but, but challenging um, uh, clothes. And, and so McLaren's shop, along with a, one or two others, um, uh, began to attract lots of, um, of of young people, and some of these young people were interested in forming bands. And the the, 
Um, the, the, the obvious example of that is Steve Jones and Paul Cook, um, who would later be, be the guitarist and the, the drummer with the Sex Pistols. And they used to hang around McLaren's shop, and as the story goes, they used to try and nick things from McLaren's shop. Um, but, but also they would, um, they would work at the shop. McLaren would get Steve Jones doing odd jobs for him and working around. And actually, interestingly, at that time, Chrissy Hind, um, who was, of course, later in The Pretenders, was working at, um, at McLaren's shop. And, uh, and Steve Jones and Paul Cook approached McLaren and said, would he manage their band? And my impression at this time is that uh, McLaren said yes, but, um, uh, but McLaren wasn't that interested in music at this particular point in time. He'd been disenchanted um, by the changes in music, really since rock and roll. He'd been a big fan of, um, of, of Eddie Cochran um, and, and that, that whole sort of early... Um, the, the 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 early Billy Fury, the whole early rock and roll scene, um, and and he thought that music had gone to pieces pretty much after rock and roll. <laughs> uh, so 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 he was he wasn't he wasn't that that interested. But he said he would do it, um, and uh, and he also put Steve Jones and Paul Cook in contact with um, uh, w- with Glenn Matlock. Uh, who would be the bassist of the Sex Pistols? And Matlock was based at one of the art colleges just just down the road from from the shop, um, and, uh, and 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 he um, he became that he got into contact with them, and so a band uh, began to to take shape, but not a band that uh, that McLaren was necessarily all that um, all, all that interested in and that the band tried out different uh, vocalists at, at different times but this band also became um, also became a focus of interest for some of McLaren's other associates within and connected to to the shop and in particular I think during um, uh, was it early, early 1975. Or at some point, at some point in 1975, um, the the New York Dolls were apparently in their death throes. They they were kind of uh, they were struggling as um, as a band. And the one band that McLaren did still like were the New York Dolls. He thought they were sort of provocative and challenging, and and they did what rock and roll was supposed to do, which was terrify parents and <laughs> and, and and sort of be outrageous. Uh, so McLaren. Took in, took it upon himself to go over to the states to try to help the New York Dolls out, and and it was a disastrous attempt, by all accounts. Um, he had them dressing up with um, hammer and uh, hammer and sickle type designs, which didn't go down well. Hopefully not. Um, yeah. in, in the states, and, and in effect, his intervention seems to have just, you know, killed them off completely. But whilst he was away, um, Bernie Rhodes. Um, who, who was his, his friend and, and worked on T-shirts and things with him. Um, and Jamie Reed, who was the kind of situationist artist, had been meeting up with the band and, and they'd been sort of talking about what they should do. 
and, uh, and, and Rhodes was a bit of a provocateur as well. He wanted them to do controversial and challenging things. And, uh, and, and Jamie Reid had, had the interest in situationism and he was talking to the band and trying to... And they were, these guys, I think, were trying to impose their designs upon, upon the band um, a little bit. And I think whilst McLaren was in, um, w- was in the States, he came across what was happening at CBGB. Um, and so he started to see these exciting bands. I think in particular television he was he was very impressed with in Richard Hell. Um, and by all accounts, Richard Hell had clothes held together by safety pins, spiky hair, and um, and, and and all the rest of it. Um, and, um, and and so when McLaren came back. He was more interested in music, and he decided that he wanted to do something with, um, with his band. And part of what he wanted to do was was to bring uh, either Johnny Thunders or Richard Hell over from the states and have them in in his band, uh, which neither of them wanted to do. But but I think in in this process, um, Rhodes Bernie Rhodes was pushed out again uh, a little bit. Uh, sparking a bit more competition, I think, between Bernie Rhodes and Malcolm McLaren. If if McLaren had his band, Rhodes wanted to have his band. Um, and then, in in, a, in an interesting um, in, in an interesting link, uh, um, uh, Bernie Rhodes went to see the Liverpool band Death School, um, where he met up with Mick Jones um, and with Tony James who were looking to put together a band um, and and they started talking and, and Rhodes took it upon himself to manage uh, their band who originally called London SS um, but obviously Mick Jones would eventually become The Clash, Tony James would eventually become Chelsea and Generation X and Brian James would, came into that fold Fairly, fairly early on, and his band would be the Damned. So, what you're starting to get is you're starting to get all these these uh, would-be musicians who are linking up with this infrastructure around McLaren's shop, um, and, and 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 I suppose that that's the start of a process of network formation. I mean, it would be. I, you know, I won't go into length about how everybody else all started to come into the network. Yeah, but then, and it, one of the things you do in Chapter 5 is, is illustrate how, you know, we can see distinct blocks yes. in, in the world of London punk that yeah. are interrelated with each other, some of which are, um, you know, helping each other out, some of which are directly in competition, some of which are, you know, essentially the support bands, the, yes. these yeah. kind of things. How does punk go to national? Um, which is what one of the kind of the crucial... Yeah. Um, moments in the book that we cross over from what is essentially a kind of um, a music world in London yeah. to become uh, a national phenomenon that allows you to draw comparisons between London, Sheffield, Manchester, yeah. and Liverpool. So, how does punk go national? It it starts with um, it, it it starts, I think, with one of the reviews that. Uh, I'm just going to struggle to get my details right here. Um, a, a review that, that Neil Spencer wrote in one of the uh, weekly music magazines. And um, the Sex Pistols had supported... Um, oh, God, now let me just think who they supported. 
<laughs> it, it's it's gone. Um, don't, don't, don't yeah, yeah. Okay, so 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 the the, the Sex Pistols had played a support um, um, a support slot um, at the Marquee in London, and when it got written up, really the review was about the Sex Pistols. It it wasn't about the the band who who they had been supporting. And, um, and famously, in that review, Steve Jones had said, we're not into music, we're into chaos. Um, and, and, of course, you've got these musos all over the country who religiously <laughs> flick through the weekly music, music mags looking for, for, for anything of interest. And that, that, that review um, seems to have sparked a huge amount of, well, I say a huge amount of interest. It's probably a tiny group of musos spread all around the, the country, but when they all saw it, they all got excited. So you get um, TV Smith and Gay Advert in, uh, they, they were in Devon, I think. Um, they read it and, and eventually decide actually to move to London on that basis, because there's obviously something exciting happening in London. But in Manchester, um, you get uh, um, Pete Shelley and Howard Devoto, as they would later be known. Uh, they, they read this review and uh, they think, right, we've just got to go to London. We've got to see this band. They borrow a car and they just head down to London um, to, to see the Sex Pistols. They meet the Sex Pistols. They are massively impressed they invite the Sex Pistols to come back and play in Manchester two very early out of London gigs for the Sex Pistols and widely celebrated ones and you get other people who've read this review Neil Spencer's review who then decide to come and see the Sex Pistols in Manchester because well I think it's Martin Brammer who was later in in the fall says it said that they played Stooges songs, and we, they were huge Stooges fans. So, but also, it was these skinheads apparently playing because they saw everybody had long hair, of course, at the time. And but the Sex Pistols didn't; they had short hair. So, what on earth? It was an outrage because skinheads were playing the Stooges, and so they, they, some of them just came along because they thought they were going to heckle. Um, but then they get to this gig, and, and they're kind of wiped out. So, so you you, you have this. There's this sort of slow process through the music mm. press whereby people are starting to find out about it and trying to find out more and do things. But then on, on the 1st of December 1970, uh, 1976, um, the, the Sex Pistols get to do, a, uh, get to do an interview on local television in... Um, in, in London, and it wasn't actually their first. Their first television appearance actually had been on a Northwest-based program that Tony Wilson um, uh, did. Uh, so it goes, and actually, they were quite controversial on that program because Jordan, uh, who was one of the women that worked in sex, um, had a swastika armband on. She looked like a sort of. A, she looked like a Nazi, um, and the Sex Pistols had gone had gone mad on the stage anyway. And so they, they could have generated a huge amount of, of controversy at that point. But it, but it was really this, this interview that they did on um, London Weekend Television with, with Bill Grundy that, that caused the... that, 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 that was the, the spark for, for punk going national. Because um, the, as far as I can tell, the host was drunk... The Sex Pistols had been in the green room all day, and they were drunk. Um, and 
I, well, you, you could you could tell the story about what happened in slightly different ways, but it seems that uh, Bill Grundy, the interviewer, had started to flirt a little bit with Susie um, of Susie and the Banshees fame, who was one of the the Sex Pistols kind of inner circle of fans at the time. Um, and this this provoked one of the Sex Pistols, Steve Jones, I think, to, to call him a dirty something or, or other. Um, and uh, and then uh, Grundy retaliates and says, you know, oh, you know, come on, say something controversial, say something, uh, say something naughty, which they then go on and do. Um, and uh, and all of this is on tea time television, um, and and like I say, it's only local. Uh, London television but the next morning in the press the national press start to run with this and you get some of the celebrated phrases associated with with punk on the headlines that next you know the filth and the fury uh, filthy lucre they're all headlines from from that next um, that that next morning and there's a huge moral panic generated around punk uh, the, the the sex pistols i think along with the clash and the Damned um, had been supposed to be going on a national tour shortly after this point in time, when probably they still would only have appealed to a small number of people. They'd have very much been a niche, um, a niche act. Um, but they, they had something like about, I think it was 26 or so gigs lined up um, around the country. But but this the, these newspaper headlines after the Bill Grundy interview provoke a moral panic, um, and councils start start intervening to prevent the gigs. Um, and I think in the end, the the the, the anarchy tour, as it was called, um, only actually played four different places uh, out of the 26 or so that it was supposed to have played. The the Sex Pistols had a record contract at that point in time with EMI, um, but the the workers at the record pressing plant refused to to press it originally because they were horrified at what had happened. And eventually EMI decided to pull out. So the the EMI version of Anarchy in the UK became a collector's item because, because EMI decided they didn't want anything do with it. All of which could have looked pretty bleak for punk. Um, the censors were coming down. There were attempts by all kinds of do-gooders to repress this and stop um, uh, stop the, the nation's youth from, from being corrupted. Um, but of course, as any sociologist would have told them, if you try and stop people in that way, you make it hugely exciting and sexy to, to young people. Um, who many of whom probably wouldn't have bothered with the Sex Pistols if it hadn't been for this huge furore that that was created. Um, And and that really was punk going national. That was the point at which which every sort of teenage, every self-respecting teenager in the land discovered punk and decided that this is what they wanted to to be what they wanted to do bands started to punk nights started to take off in different towns and cities bands started to form and and, and really the the whole thing I think, got going as a as, as a consequence of that you know there had been like i say the earlier precursors like um, pete shelley and howard devoto who formed buzzcocks um, but really, I, I think the going national was was as a consequence of Bill Grundy and the and the moral panic. The, the rest of the book is uh, devoted to 
these other cities yeah. and the evolution of a different kind of music yeah. as well. Um, I wonder, um, just uh, to bring the discussion to a close, whether you could um, maybe use Sheffield as the example to talk about um, how Sheffield was similar and how it was different to London and how, particularly musically, yeah. um, the social network analysis shows us um, how a different kind of music emerges in Sheffield. Yeah, OK. Um, so in some sense, in some senses, I'm, I'm not sure it's the... Um, Sheffield is the, is, the, is the odd one in the pack yeah. in some ways because I think um, in Liverpool and Manchester, you had great enthusiasm for punk. Yeah. And then you had innovators who, at a fairly early stage, decided that punk had had its moment yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was time to move on and do something different. Sheffield, although there was a thriving punk scene in Sheffield and it has been written up quite well, a lot of the movers and shakers in Sheffield were people who hadn't, weren't as impressed by punk or as influenced, I don't think, um, by, by punk. Um, and, and seem to have been um, interested in, uh, in, in, in electronic music. Um, and I think Cabaret Voltaire, uh, the, the three members of, of Cabaret Voltaire, had been hugely influential in, in that. I think, I think actually they, as much as anything, had been interested in just in electronics and in making weird noises. And they, they were probably... Um, they were, but but they amongst the other things, they were interested in film scores. So I think they'd been really um, uh, really attracted by the, um, the the Clockwork Orange uh, film score, which was done by um, well, it was Walter Carlos, I think, who eventually became Wendy, Wendy yeah. Carlos. Um, and and so that they were a lot of the early Cabaret Voltaire stuff was just exploring sort of soundscapes um, and I guess they've been influenced by Roxy Music and Brian Eno and, and these other kinds of things as well but but also particularly Krautrock and, and the, uh, the, the uh, uh, craft work but I think that what, what punk did was it, it, it created this sense of possibility this sense that you can do things and this sense that you should do things and, and it, it, it sort of mobilised people to begin to organise musical events, regular kinds of musical events, including some at the, the, the what was called the NowSock at, um, at, at the university. Um, and, and really, those, those sorts of events attracted both the electronic music pioneers and, and the punks. They were probably organised for the punks, but the electronic music pioneers began to drift towards them as well. And I think in that process, um, the networks began to form in much the way that networks had begun to form around Sex Pistols gigs and around Malcolm McLaren's shop um, in uh in, in London, and it was with the formation of, of those networks that, again, you had the, I suppose, what some people might call the social capital that allowed cultural events and cultural innovations to, um, to, 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 to be organised to get a hold and uh, for, for a thriving music world to to begin to take place, but but you also find, I mean, again, Sheff Sheffield was unusual in having perhaps fewer 
dedicated support personnel. Um, so uh, you, you know, if you look in if you look in Liverpool and you look in Manchester, you you find a reasonably largish bunch of slightly older men who are quite happy to take on the role of managing, who want to be movers and shakers. They don't necessarily want to play in bands themselves, but they they do want to help and facilitate young musicians to um, to, 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 to do their own thing. And that was very similar, I think, to what McLaren and his cronies around sex were were doing. Sheffield is slightly different um, in that there aren't quite as many of those people. Uh, but, but there certainly are some. There, there's this very enigmatic character called Marcus Featherby um, in, in Sheffield who, um, I mean, he, he's mysterious because apparently um, there's, he changed his name upon coming to Sheffield and nobody quite knows who he was before he was Marcus Featherby. And then he left um, under under a bit of a cloud and mystery, and apparently changed his name again. So so it's this. I mean, God knows why. It might just have, might have been a strange guy that liked to change his name every now and then. I don't know. But but he was a big organizer, and he managed quite a few of the different bands. He organized various um, uh, labels at one point or another that put out music by Sheffield bands as well as by. Uh, bands from further afield and he did the another thing that crops up fairly commonly certainly in Manchester and Liverpool and Sheffield is the 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 local area compilation album so you get these compilations that showcase local talent and Marcus Featherby did that for for Sheffield Um, uh, so so you've got you've got these movers and shakers although like I say fewer of them in Sheffield who begin to um, take on the role of um, organiser and enabling young bands to have spaces to play in and audiences to come and see them. But I think in Sheffield, interestingly, some of the bands do that themselves. So I got the impression, certainly from the archive, that the, the Cabaret Voltaire had played a hugely facilitative role. Um, it, it, I mean, they were a huge influence on the Sheffield bands because I think for a time they were the interesting Sheffield band um, and lots of other Sheffield musicians went along to see them and were influenced by them. But Cabaret Voltaire had a, um, Cabaret Voltaire had a studio, uh, the Western Works, out in one of the old disused industrial buildings um, and they let lots of the other bands go in there and use and, and record sessions and, and do uh, various kinds of things like that so they were quite they were although they were probably the key band in the city they were also the key organizers and support personnel for other people but actually another thing I should mention about Sheffield was um, this council run project uh, which had been an effort, I think, on behalf of the council to um, uh, to, to help young people become involved in in the arts, and it had an odd name. It was Meat Whistle. It was called, which is obviously a, a kind of a, a, a strange sexual um, reference, which the council don't seem to have picked up on. And, and there are there, there are stories about this um, meat whistle being organised by these hippies who would walk around with no shoe. And it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that a council would do. But then, having said that, of course, Sheffield in the nineteen seventies was was known as the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire, and it had a very different kind of 
political take uh, to to much of the rest of, of, of the country. And it was quite an innovative and, and, and different place politically. Sheffield famously had um, ridiculously cheap bus fares um, and things because the council had these socialist ideas that, that they put into the city. Uh, but I still think they wouldn't have approved of Meat Whistle thinking <laughs> what was going on there. Um, and, and Meat Whistle was a place where many of the, um, of the people who went on to be part of those electronic um, bands uh, initially met. So uh, several, uh, Ian Craig Marsh and Martin Ware of the Human League went there along with um, Glenn Gregory, who they'd originally wanted to be the lead singer for the Human League, but later joined them in Heaven 17. Um, you had um, you had people from the early punk bands uh, from there was a band called Two Point Three who were probably the first Sheffield punk band. He he was at Paul Bower it was he was involved in Meat Whistle and he was also um, the person who, who 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 ran Sheffield's first punk zine Gunrubber. Um, so, so, so I mean there, there were lots of them and they they interestingly formed they, they formed a band. It, or some of them, some, it wasn't the Human League people, there was some, some of those early people involved in Meat Whistle formed a band called Musical Vomit, um, which kind of sounds punk, it sounds like it's anticipating what punk did, and, and apparently they played a festival in 1974, which polystyrene, um, who was of course the lead singer in X-Ray Specs, and she was from London, but she um, she attended this music festival. She saw Musical Vomit play, and allegedly said that Musical Vomit were the first punk band ever. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to endorse that any more than I would endorse any. But but I think I suppose it shows that this this musical project was another kind of what, what network analysts sometimes refer to as a focus or we refer to foci, and these are the times and places which draw people with similar kinds of interests together and allow them to form networks, which then allow them to engage in collective action of of the kind that punk and post-punk involved. And I think that Meat Whistle was one of these foci. It was one of the places where all of these young people who were interested in, in a range of creative arts, but probably particularly music, um, first came together and formed friendships that would later form the basis of what became the early Sheffield um, music world. Um, but uh, the other thing I did, you, you sort of talked about the um, similarities. I mean, I looked at the network for London, I looked at the networks for Liverpool, for Manchester and for Sheffield. And, and really, if we look at the structural properties of the network, they're all quite, quite similar. Um, now, to what extent that is because um, you need a particular type of network in order for music worlds to emerge, and to what extent it's just a, 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 an effect of the fact that when you're doing music, you will generate networks that look at in a particular kind of way. Uh, I, yeah, who, who knows? Uh, but but it's certainly it's it's an interesting. Um, I think it's an interesting uh, observation that these networks are all quite similar to one another, and, and that does suggest that, that at least the network structure of of music worlds is perhaps predictable in certain in certain kinds of, of ways.
there's a lot more uh, I could ask you about the book. It, it's a really, really rich and really fascinating book. But um, just by way of conclusion, uh, are you carrying on working around social network analysis and music, music worlds, or are you doing kind of completely different things for your, your future projects at the moment? Um, uh, I'm, conti- I'm carrying on. I'm, I'm continuing. So I am... Um, I, I have, I'm actually organising a, a, um, a symposium here in Manchester on music and networks, to tell you about, uh, in, um, in, in June, uh, uh, which will bring people from internationally, uh, really, who are working in these areas. And we're going to have a big uh, symposium on music and networks and music worlds. And my own contribution to that has been... Uh, to look, uh, and actually I was still putting the network together just when you arrived, uh, to look at two-tone and the... Because uh, two-tone is, is an interesting music world, I think, um, because it's, it's a highly significant post-punk strand. And I felt when I finished the book, the bigger mission was that I probably should have said something more about two-tone. So I'm atoning for my sins there, or two-toning for my sins there, maybe. Um, but, but also it's interesting because it's much more ethnically diverse. It's interesting because it's translocal um, in a way that I think the other music worlds that I've looked at perhaps well, well they are, and I look at that in the book, but, um, but, but two-tone is somehow fundamentally translocal in a way that perhaps wasn't true for the other worlds that, that I looked at. Um, and it raises all kinds of interesting questions. So, yeah, I'm, I'm carrying on two-tone and also this symposium. Sounds like it needs another book, two-tone. Uh, watch this space, who knows? <laughs> Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Professor Nick Crossley from the University of Manchester about his new book, Networks of Sound, Style and Subversion.